Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Esquivel-Campo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, host of MSNBC's The Readout, Joanne Reed joins us for a look back at the January 6th insurrection. This is the redemption period after Reconstruction. This is essentially a second civil war. And a look ahead. How did last year's attack change the political landscape and what does it mean for the future of the country? We have 10 months to save our democracy. This year will determine whether we remain a democracy. So Keith is out today. He's still enjoying a little holiday time off, but we are joined by one of the smartest people on television, someone I also adore, the one and only Joanne Reed. Thank you so much for being here. This has been a really long time coming. We are so happy that you're here. It is a pleasure to be here, uh, Mara and Wes. It's what a weird year last year. So I'm actually just happy it's not 2021 anymore. How about that? Yes, I think we can all agree on that. So um, we can, I want but to... don't jinx it. Don't jinx it. We don't know what's to come. Know. <laughs> we don't know. Oh, I don't already warn. Oh, listen, I gave the I'm the I'm, a, I'm the oldest on this thing, so I gave the mama warning to 2022. I gave it that look. <laughs> Play with Let me. Know. You're like, I'm not 2022 knows. So. Don't touch anything 2022. Sit down and be respectful. <laughs> Just like let us breathe. So yeah. speaking of last year, um, the one year anniversary of the insurrection is coming up. And so I thought it would be useful to just kind of set the table as to where we were this time last year, because I myself had to kind of go back through my memories and really refresh my memory because so much has happened so quickly. So, you know, first, of course, starting in the spring, we had the pandemic start, which was unprecedented for any of us. I mean, the last time we saw something like this was over 100 years ago, which led to mass casualties, mass lockdowns, economic struggles, um, real true turmoil, unlike anything that any of us had seen. Then George Floyd is killed. And we see these nationwide protests for racial justice, also unlike anything we've ever seen in their scope, in how long they lasted, and in how multiracial and wide ranging they were. Then we get into the election, which was absolute insanity, starting with that shit show of a debate, the first debate, which Wes and I and Soledad O'Brien and Keith talked about live right after the debate at midnight and we all had a cocktail because it was so insane we needed to drink just to process it then president trump got covid then the election happened it took days before we knew the results of the election then after january so we're no longer in 2020 officially it's now 2021 by just a few days I recall having one of the deadliest days of the pandemic. And then Georgia elected two Democratic senators for the first time in 30 years. And then January 6th happened. And I remember getting a phone call from Keith and I was working out in my bathroom. And if that is not a sign of the times, I'm not sure what is, because we put an exercise bike in the bathroom so that we could all have a little bit of space. We called it the gym and spa. And I was working out in my bathroom and Keith called me and he said, are you watching this shit? And I put on CNN and I will tell you my reaction was a shrug because the concept of what is normal and what is historic, my mind had still been spinning from everything that happened. So Joy, I want to start by asking you about your thoughts at the time that it was taking place 
and how you've processed it now after a year. Yeah, and that rundown uh, just gave me, uh, it re-traumatized me, but, <laughs> but, they, but, but you know, it's all good. I, I, it, it's all good. Look, I, I feel like I actually have been in a constant state of trauma for the last uh, two years. And so you're right. It was just another trauma laid on t layered on top of trauma. However, what I had been doing in the months before, really from the election on, is talking with a lot of law enforcement and a lot of national security friends and so I had been bracing myself for January 6th for a long time because we had heard constantly, especially law enforcement friends saying, watch out for the 5th through the 17th, really obviously through the 20th, through the inaugural. It's going to get bad. Donald Trump had said it's going to be wild in D.C. He was literally telling us that there was going to be an insurrection. He was warning us that it was going to get hot. And they kept on saying it was going to be on the 6th. So I was already so like buttoned up and tense going into that day. Um, you know, the previous things that I had done in DC, I had done, in, you know, doing interviews there, I was taking security with me because, you know, I was telling people don't be in DC. I, I, we, this was not a secret. He, it was being broadcast and telegraphed by Donald Trump and his supporters, by people like Steve Bannon. And I spend way too much time listening to the crap that they say and that they write. Um, because I, I feel like part of my job is almost like it's like a preschool, right? Where I'm supposed to monitor the, the, the toddlers. And, and so we kind of monitor them. I kind of see that as part of the job, right? Just monitor these people. So I actually was expecting something terrible to happen on the 6th and was bracing myself physically for it. So at that point, I was still doing the show from the basement, uh, from the studio in my basement. So I was home. And when I first saw it and heard it and turned the TV on and started watching it, I was so angry but my for whatever reason what i was fixated on is i was watching these crazy screaming defecating spitting violent crowds converge on the capitol was oh my god please don't let them find any lawmakers because they're going to kill them and number two as they're marauding toward the capitol please don't let them find the black museum the blacksonian mm. and all i could think is if they figure out if I mean, these are idiots but if they figure out where the Black Museum is, where the Smithsonian Museum of the, the, the National Museum of African American History is, they're going to ransack it. They're going to rip it apart. They're going to take all those artifacts. They're going to burn them. And they're going to hurt the guards who are mostly lower paid Black folks. They're going to hurt them. They're gonna, they might kill someone. So that's all I could think. So as it was happening for me, it was not unexpected, but I was just so fucking angry because I'm like, how could I? in my basement have been preparing myself for this since the election, but nobody in charge was prepared. Where was the National Guard? Where were the Capitol Police? These people are just running into the Capitol. No one's stopping them. Folks are taking selfies with them. I couldn't tell whether some police were on their side. It was just such chaos that I could not believe. But then I realized, oh, that's why no one was prepared. Because it wasn't Black Lives Matter, right? It wasn't Black people. It was Trump people. So the, the attitude toward them, even in a capital that, that was gassing Black Lives Matter protesters so Donald Trump could take a walk and hold a Bible upside down for a photo op, that same infrastructure sees white MAGA people and says, they're fine. They're welcome. They're not dangerous. They refuse to see them as dangerous. It's the same reason school shootings keep happening, because we as a society don't see a certain kind of person read white male 
as dangerous, even when they say they're dangerous. Wes, as you've reflected on this over the last year, what has surprised you the most? You know, I don't know about surprised necessarily, but it's been interesting to watch January 6th kind of disappear into the ether uh, a bit in our kind of in our conversation, right? We like to imagine that something like that would have almost 9-11 style implications across a political spectrum, right? Not not that people wouldn't interpret it differently or that there wouldn't be various partisan, um, you know, stances or conflict about it, but the idea that everyone would accept a reality, accept a set of facts, this thing happened, uh, and there would be some kind of open, robust discussion and public policy response about what that means, right? And again, you could see how that might be different, right? People on the people on the right might say this is a law enforcement issue and they might be calling for way more troops at the Capitol, right? Versus people on the left who might say this is an issue of domestic terror and white supremacy. And so this is like you can understand how um, different political ideologies might respond differently, but you would expect that everyone would respond. There would be a full, robust engagement of the reality of what happened. And I think that it is a kind of a sad commentary on our time that isn't what has happened. That here we are in a moment where there is still a real strain of denialism um, among one of our major parties of the severity of what really happened. I think there's a difficulty sometimes of us in the media to discuss it full-throatedly um, uh, what, with the severity. And there's some hemming and some hawing and some thinking. You know, I, I've mentioned this before, you know, but I'm working on a book about white supremacist violence. And I've been thinking a lot about it. So I've been in a lot of the history, right? And, and, and when historians write about a state capital being sacked, they're not going, well, is it fair to call all of them white supremacists? I mean, was everyone at the lynch mob technically a you know, well, our studies found that 40% of them actually had just lost their jobs. And so perhaps the reason that they ran out the four black state lawmakers, you know, what we saw was a riot at the Capitol of the United States of, of democracy, intent on stopping the peaceful transition of power that occurred the day after the a, a multiracial coalition elected the elected a black senator from Georgia and the first Jewish senator from Georgia to hand the Senate to the multiracial political party. And, and that this riot was encouraged by the leader of what is functionally the white reactionary political party in our politics, right? Mm -hmm. History is going to see this very clearly, <laughs> even if we have a difficulty grappling with that clarity now. So what does that say then about the GOP, there are some exceptions, of course, and Liz Cheney has sacrificed her political career, arguably, um, for the sake of stating the truth and stating facts and doing so unambiguously and being a champion of democracy in this way. What does it say about the state of the GOP that the response has been a lot of trying to explain or denying that what took place actually took place? You know, oh, these were just tourists or it was largely peaceful or whatever the excuse of the day is. I was shocked, gobsmacked at the fact that there were still senators who would not vote to certify the results of some states after the election, hours after they had been run out of the building by this mob. What does it say about where we're going in the midterms and in the next presidential election? Well, you know, if, to, to start, I would say 
one thing it says is that there were people who were themselves potentially anticipating some sort of chaos. We don't know if they knew it was going to be that level of chaos. So I think we need more investigation as to what members of Congress and which members of Congress and whether any members of Congress knew in advance that when Donald Trump said on, I believe it was on December 7th, December 19th, 2020, it's going to be wild in D.C. on January 6th, whether any members of Congress actually knew that he meant they were going to do something concrete to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power, to disrupt the congressional handover, the congressional certification of the election, to give them the opportunity to do the, you know, to, 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 to sort of alter events, right, and send it back to the states and try to get Congress to vote for the president and all of that. Because we now know there was a written down plan. There were multiple memos that went out among top lawmakers, including people connected to and in the White House, that said, this is the plan. We're going to make sure that Mike Pence does not simply read the envelopes like at the Oscars, which was his job, but that somehow the objection gets met by a senator. You need a senator to confer to, to confirm it. You need a member of the House to raise the objections, that they were going to do that in order to throw the election back to the state. So that's one thing it says, is that there was planning. I think the second thing it says is that this is a party that is desperate and thirsty for power by any means necessary, because initially their reaction was just like our reaction. They were running from this crowd. Let's just be clear. Not one of the people who are now claiming these were tourists went out and met those tourists and spoke to them. Right. Not one of them went out there and shook hands with them, high fived them, gave them a fist bump. No, they ran from them. They tried to block them from coming in the doors. They were as terrified as every Democrat and every staff member was. They were scared of the crowd. So initially, their initial reaction, including the House Minority Leader, um, Kevin McCarthy was to say this was terrible. You know, even Lindsey Graham, who's the greatest sycophant on the face of the earth, said this is awful. I'm done. You know, Mitch McConnell, who would do anything for power. I'm not sure that he wouldn't sell out his own family for power. He's so thirsty. He initially said this is awful. But then they thought about it and they said we can use this. This is useful for us. This is a way that we if we just stick together and we just refuse to condemn it, and we backpedal off of an investigation, this is the perfect pretext. If this many people are willing to get violent and willing to hurt police officers who they claim they're for in order to keep Donald Trump in office, this is a great pretext for our party to enact laws all over the country that say, okay, we recognize that you believe the election was unfair. You're right, elections are unfair. The Democrats are cheating. Let's put these laws in place that make it harder for them to vote. They realized it's useful. And what it says about the Republican Party is that it is so entrenched in authoritarianism at this point. It is so opposed to democracy, one person, one vote. It is so opposed to the idea that elections should count and that they should matter, that there's no line, there's no bottom, there's nothing they wouldn't sanction in order to have power back. But here's something I've really wondered about where we stand right now, because clearly there's this cult of personality um, that's built around Trump. But is it about him, the man, exclusively? If you remove him from the picture, does it all fall apart? Because there doesn't seem to be an heir apparent that commands the kind of attention and loyalty that he does. Or has this now grown into an ideology that's much bigger than the man? Is this about Trump himself? Or has this grown into its own political wing? I think it's bigger than him. You know, the, what's the, uh, it's above me now? It's above him. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not about him anymore. Trumpism is its own separate thing. He can't even command his people to get vaccinated. And when he says he got vaccinated, they go, oh, he must be senile. So it is above him now. Trumpism, I think, has two levels to it. I think at the base party level, it is a cult. 
it's a cult of personality. Um, Reza uh, Aslam, uh, I interviewed him, I think when Donald Trump first started running, and he said, oh, this is developing into a death cult. They'll die for him. And they are. They're, you know, white, middle class, white, middle aged people are now the forefront of the dead among um, COVID patients because they refuse to get vaccinated. They're the, the most hardcore anti-vaxxers and they're dying at, you know, the, the, the biggest clip because they are in a cult. QAnon, cult, and it's a cult around Trump. So I think at the base of the party level, yes, it's about Trump and it's a cult of Trump. But I think at the high level, at the Mitch McConnell uh, level, at the Kevin McCarthy level, they view, have always viewed Trump as somebody that they find detestable but useful. And that they understand that the worship of Trump is very useful to them, that they can acquire power so that they can get a 6-3 Supreme Court, so that they can get high positions that they never have to give up because of a mere thing like an election. They are using the cult to gain power for themselves. It's sort of um, what, uh, I, I can't remember who said it, they called it late stage Bolshevism. Right, that there's this sort of Bolshevik class of people who are going to benefit financially and politically from the cult, but at the base, it's just a cult. Joy, what do you think happens? Right, because what we know is that in the year following January 6th, we have seen a movement at the state level to, on the one hand, run out elected officials who attempted to certify and legitimize the results of the election, which Joe Biden clearly won. Um, there's been a movement to get rid of many of those officials. We've seen a movement in state legislatures to roll back, be it vote by mail, uh, early voting, uh, voting places, right? There has been a, a legislative movement to try to change the way the rules of our elections work to prevent uh a Republican candidate like Donald Trump from losing in an equally close election were it to happen again in 2024 or, or following. So what happens, right? Where do you, I mean, Trump is, he has to be the front runner if, if he is alive and runs again, you know, and, and he, uh, you know, and even as there are splinters, right, perhaps uh, you, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering like, how would you handicap his strength coming into 2024 with what we know? Uh, both that you're right, it it is it has ascended beyond him, right? We see some of these splinters with whether it be on vaccines and some on other things, right? But he still is kind of the ostensible leader of the Republican Party at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that if he if he runs, and and by the way, I'm in the I'm of the unpopular opinion that he is less likely to run than people might think, um, and I think that the only way he runs is if the Republican Party at the state, local, and national level is so completely successful in rigging the elections from bottom to the top, from the school board all the way to the presidential election, so that he cannot lose. He won't run and lose again. He's not his ego will not allow it. I don't think his ego could survive it if he were to lose again. And he can't pull the same excuse twice, right? He can't say, oh, they stole it from me again, right? So I think he won't run unless he's a guaranteed victor. And if he's a guaranteed victor, that means we have no more democracy. Our democracy is dead at that point. Um, I think, but if he were to run, there is not going to be a challenger who's going to run against him. The only person who I think might have the cojones to try to do it is Ron DeSantis, who has an equally sized ego um, and an equally strong sociopathy. Um, but I'm not sure that he would even try it. Right. He's and he is the heir apparent if Donald Trump doesn't run, although there's issues between those two camps because they're egos. Um, but I think the problem we have now 
is that the Republican Party has so internalized the big lie. You have to not only believe the big lie that the election was stolen from Trump in order to now be a Republican, otherwise you get kicked out. You have to act on it. You can't just say it now. You have to act on it. You have to implement laws. You have to do a, these fake audits, even in states Trump won. You but have to do you think they really believe it, Joy? Do you think they yeah. really, polls say that they do believe it, but do you think they really, because there were candidates on the same ballot <laughs> yeah. who won, who they accept that completely, right? They say, well, this person won, you know, for House or Senate or whatever the yeah. case may be. We accept that as legitimate. But mm -hmm. on this same ballot, no, it was rigged. <laughs> in yeah. favor of Biden. Do people yeah. really believe that? Yes, I think at the base of the party level, they they absolutely believe that there was an elaborate conspiracy theory pulled off somehow between the dead ex-Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez and China. They believe all sorts of bananas ways that it happened, but they and, think that <laughs> grand deep state conspiracy stole the election just from Trump. Now, remember, and this, why sorry. not give themselves a bigger majority in Congress Hello. if you're going to go through all that trouble? Why not at least give yourself like 65 senators, no right. filibuster, right? Well, but, and get everything but, through. But I guess not that but far. I question, think they doesn't care about the other people. They just care about Trump. But I think the elected officials know it isn't true. They're just using it as a way to gain power for themselves. So but what do we do with that? Right. We're all people who work in the media, in the public sphere, in the public discussion. Right. What do we do with a country where a non-insignificant portion of the electorate, if not the population, believes that down is up and the sky is green and Donald Trump won the election and it was stolen from him and Hillary Clinton is eating children in the basement of a pizza parlor. Like, you know, like, like, like actually, what do we do? Right. You know, like in, a, in a way that because we live with all of these people, they have power. Right. They're, they are a massive, again, maybe not majority, but plurality or or significant portion of again of our electorate if not our population and maybe in fact maybe if you look at the whole population maybe it's even more of them than those who show up to vote what do we do that's a great question because you know in this country right now we have multiple religions some of which are shrinking like catholicism and protestantism we have evangelicalism um and we have conspiracism and conspiracism is the fastest growing religion in the United States. You can call it Trumpism or whatever, but it incorporates things like QAnon. I mean, people who consider themselves rational, like nurses, right? And doctors who are treating other people, who are like giving people medicine, believe that there is a giant cult of liberals who are eating children and draining their blood in order to stay young forever. They think that's actually true and that there is a massive conspiracy of child molestation and, and sacrificing children so they can get their blood. Like, they think that's true. But how do they explain it when, like, someone says, oh, Trump will be reinstated in August for sure, that yeah. I promise you, and then August comes and goes and he's not reinstated? I mean, how then do you continue to believe in something that is continuously proven wrong? I mean, I so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I had a friend, a very good friend, um, who was in a cult, um, in a religious cult. And this religious cult leader said that the world was gonna end on a date specific. This was back in the 90s. And you know, on the day that the world was supposed to end, I went around to her house and I said, hey, you're still here. Brought <laughs> <laughs> you here. some flowers. You know what I mean? <laughs> what happened? And she had a straight faced excuse for why it didn't happen. Nothing, even the literally the, her cult leader was proven wrong because we were all still alive and she had an absolutely straight faced 
excuse for why it didn't happen. This factor and that factor and that factor changed the nature of the universe and do da da da. Because cults don't, facts can't end cult belief. Facts don't matter when it comes to a cult, it's belief. And so all that happens is the QAnon, whoever Q is, who we now know is probably just somebody who was running an internet, you know, um, sort of business and wanted to grow it and sort of used, you know, QAnon to get eyeballs. Um, they just change the narrative and they make an excuse and they doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. So then, you know, when I take a step back and I look at everything that's happening, there's been so much attention paid to trying to explain the Trump voter or the uh, insurrectionist, you know, it's all, it all, it's always about economic anxiety and they want economic opportunities. And there's been so much time trying to spend trying to understand these people. I still think it all comes down to race. And I don't know if I'm being reductionist. I don't know if I'm oversimplifying. I don't know if it's because I live with the reality of being a black woman and seeing everything through that lens. But to me, we saw this after reconstruction and now we're living in the post Obama era. And it is white Americans reasserting their belief that this is their country. That's how I see it. Is there a nuance I'm missing? Is this economic anxiety or people just want a little bigger slice of the pie? They want to pay fewer taxes. They don't want government in their life so much. I mean, what is this? You are absolutely right. <laughs> it is it is all race. This is the redemption period after reconstruction. This is white America, as you just said, trying to seize back control, not just of the political um, power that they feel that they've unfairly lost and that Obama was the biggest exemplar of them losing political power they feel belonged to them, but of the culture. They've lost the culture. The culture wars are over. The left won, right? Gay marriage is legal. Trans people have, you know, TV shows, <laughs> you know, um, there's, you know, it, you know, being gay, you don't have to hide in, you don't have to hide in the closet. You can, you know, be a, a popular, you know, you can be a news anchor. You can be, any, it doesn't matter anymore. And so they've lost the culture wars and they're very angry uh, about it. And they feel that this country belongs to them, always belonged to them, was made by them for them. And they resent the rise of the rising majority, which is non-white people, black and brown folk and indigenous folks standing up for themselves. And they just resent the cultural and demographic changes. And so this is essentially a second civil war. So uh, the Public Religion Research Institute does to me the best uh, polling and work on this, these topics and on the religious base of these topics, because white evangelicals are the core of this movement, um, this anti-democratic movement. And controlling for everything else, income, um, jobs, uh, you know, whether you're employed or not, whether you're affluent, own a home, nothing else explains the belief system that, you know, elections are being stolen from people like Donald Trump, that Republicans are being, you know, unfairly denied power because, you know, immigrants are stealing jobs. You control for everything else, it's all race. It, the question that most defined whether or not you believe all of these things is this question that was asked by PRRI. This is what determined whether or not you were a Trump supporter, not income, not anything else, not whether you had economic problems. It was, was America a better country in the 1950s when white men had control? I'm sorry, it was white Christian men. If you want to know whether some, which side someone's on, that's the question. It's, do you believe this country was better off when in, in the era, in the 1950s, in those eras, when white Christian men were in control. And if you say, yes, the country was better off back then, you're on that side. If you say, no, the country's better now, that there's more opportunity, you're on our side. 
when I talk to folks who are not kind of immersed in the news the way that we are, because it's our profession, but kind of the casual news watcher and observer, they're, they're not really aware of how dire things are, of, of how we truly are facing one of the most critical periods in United States history, certainly since the Civil War. People don't know. And I hear this alarm being sounded on the news all the time, but for some reason, people just aren't taking it seriously. I think it's because we're just optimistic. We think that the systems will protect themselves and um, democracy will do what it's always done and we'll just be fine. And that is absolutely not the case. How do you think this is going to play out? Are we at the beginning of the end of this democracy? I think that what will determine whether or not this democracy is going to survive is what happens in 2022 and and obviously 2024, but 2022 is key. You know, a friend of mine and I were texting this morning who we talk about this all the time, that we have 10 months to save our democracy, essentially, Um, 10, 11 months, because if Republicans are able to so rig the system that we essentially no longer have have free and fair elections, and what we have are electoral guarantees for Republicans, meaning, remember, they are a 90% white party. They are the white grievance party, as Wesley said, they are the white party. Um, The Democrats are the multiracial party. If the white party is able to engineer, bioengineer, repeated victory, eternal victory, then we don't have a democracy anymore. So that's it. Um, You'll have, you know, Trump or DeSantis will be president and there's nothing that could ever make them leave. Like they could just stay in office. There's what would stop them? Mitch McConnell? You know, who's going to stop them? The Supreme Court that says, go ahead and have those bounties in Texas. It's fine. As long as you're white Christians and these are your beliefs, do whatever you want. You want to gather, go for it. Right. They are a white Christian majority Supreme Court and they don't care about starry decisis. Those magic words don't work anymore. So I think, yeah, we have a uh, th- this year will determine whether we remain a democracy or not. And I think it's 50 50 because the Republican Party is has made its choice and it's decided that it's it's their right to rule. They, they, have a, they, are, they have a right to rule sort of belief system that they must rule this country because they're the party of white people. And so they're going to, of white Christians specifically, and they're going to rule this country and they don't care what the damage is. They don't care what the damage to the environment, the advantage to people of color, the, da- the, envi- the, the damage to our political standing. They don't give a damn. They just want power. Um, and so, and the Democrats, unfortunately, don't seem to understand how dire things are and they're acting as if they're just facing a normal political party on the other side of the aisle and they're not acting with dispatch nor will the supreme court save us because they're on the other people's side at least four or five of them are and john roberts doesn't give a damn and doesn't believe in voting rights so even liz cheney who we're praising earlier she doesn't necessarily believe in voting rights because she has been for everything donald trump did in terms and she's not for the uh the the the, the, the legislation that would preserve the right to vote she's against that so she don't want you to have your voting rights. She just doesn't particularly want democracy to be overthrown violently. That's the only thing that she's heroic on. The rest of it, she's like, do whatever you want, Republicans. Wait, so Joy, so, Joy, what should so what should the Democrats? What do the Democrats need to do here, right? Because because I do think I think any of us who have reported on this see the disconnect between what's happening on the ground and the leadership of the Democratic Party in terms of what, and that goes all the way up and down. The president, and vice president, the leadership. In, in Congress, the people running the campaigns, the former President Obama, like it, it's this it's the sense of everyone thinks they're playing nice and having a tea party in Washington with their Republican buddies. And meanwhile, it, it, you know, like 
people are being disenfranchised by the hundreds of thousands and the Supreme Court is being taken and, and pot- potentially you know, irreconcilably changed. Right? What is it the Democrats don't get and what do they need to do? Um, I will say one thing they need to do is accept the fact that they're not going to get help from the legacy media in this effort. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, those of us who report on this and talk about it um, as part of our jobs, we understand it. But honestly, I have to be honest, I don't think that the mainstream legacy media understands it either. And I think the voice from nowhere attitude of journalism writ large has failed this country miserably. It's, it, it's the same thing that happened in the 1930s uh, in the ways that the New York Times and the Washington Post and others covered Adolf Hitler. They covered him like he was a normal politician, as if his excesses were something that would be mitigated by the moderates in his party, that he wouldn't be able to continue being so extreme. And they covered him the same way they covered Donald Trump, as if he was just another Republican. And so I think the, the Democrats need to understand this is the media is not going to save us. Because by and large, other than cable news media that specifically talks about it, I mean, the Rachel Maddows of the world, the Chris Hayes of the world, the Lawrence O'Donnells of the world, you know, Don Lemon is, 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 you know, paying attention to this. There are some people who are paying attention, but for the most part, the legacy media treats Republicans as a normal political party. Well, and what if, and what if we didn't? understand that, that, huh? Well, I was going to say, but, but what if, what if the legacy media wasn't like that? Because one of the things I struggle with or I grapple with as I think about it is, even if tomorrow, because I, I mean, I agree and have leveled a lot of those same critiques of all of our friends and colleagues, right? But even if tomorrow we got the media that I think you want or the media that I want, what one thing I have a difficulty with is is having to deal with the elephant that is Fox News and the conservative media apparatus. That the reality is that if the entire legacy media understood it tomorrow, does it even have the power? In our democracy, with our electorate, the reality is we do have a hyper-partisan political entity that is the most powerful media organization in our country. And and so I think we rightfully and understandably focus on the failures of the legacy media. But part of me wonders is, like, is is it already out of the barn, right? That, like, Fox News became what it is after talk radio became what it was and the right-wing internet became what it was. And even if tomorrow we all figured it out and said, all right, now we're on war footing, it's an emergency for democracy, and CBS News and the New York Times and everyone was, would it even matter? It, and I mean, I, that's an excellent question. And I think it, it, it probably wouldn't because we have two political parties, one of which has abandoned democracy and the other of which is the only choice for the majority of people of color, but they lack at the leadership level, the language. And I think the motivation to really defend us. And, and my problem with the Democrats, you know, and I worked, listen, I worked in democratic politics and nearly quit the Democratic Party as a result. That's how irritated I was, particularly after 2004. Um, Lucky enough to work a little bit on the Obama campaign, but even in the ways in which Democrats who are trying to elect black people and attract black people, I don't think Democrats have the language specifically on anti-blackness. They never have. They don't, they aren't comfortable. They don't, they aren't confident. Um, And when those who are comfortable and confident, like the squad, try to show them how to explain that they're defending and how to openly and actively defend people of color, they scream at them. 
and blame them for making it harder for Joe Biden to get his agenda through when they're the only ones defending a man's agenda. They're the only ones fighting for, you know, low-income people and women who are working in, in daycare. They're the ones doing it and they're screaming at them. It's like, no, they're trying to show you. AOC is a better communicator with average people who don't follow politics every day than the people at the top of her party. But they think she's the problem. They think Ayanna Presley is the problem, right? They think they think that those women are the problem instead of, and they, they don't understand that they're the problem. And so my my challenge is that we don't have a party that robustly even understands how to defend the people who depend on them. And that is very sad. They're so desperately interested in bipartisanship and in getting the mean football players to be their friends in high school that they don't know how to defend their own folks. Mm-hmm. Well, Joy, I could listen to you explain this all day because you are truly one of the smartest people I know. You have a lot going on. You have your show, you have podcasts. And tell us, can you just give us a quick plug of all the yeah. ways that people can, <laughs> can find and hear and see you? Well, absolutely. And I thank you very much. And I appreciate you having been on. A, I have to get you back on, my sister, uh, you know, because I, I adore you, uh, Mara. And, uh, um, you know, so I am doing too much. <laughs> I'd be... I need to learn self-care, <laughs> but at the moment uh, I do the readout um, weeknights uh, on MSNBC at 7 p.m. Eastern, which I love, love my team. We're trying to do our best to be out here screaming into the wind um, about how dire our democracy is. Uh, but then to give, to, to do a little self-care, I try to do things that I also enjoy. Um, so Jackie Reed and I do a podcast called Read This, Read That, because we're both reads who spell it right. Sorry, those who spell it R-E-E-D. I know. I Keith is it. not here um, to defend himself. He's not here to, I know, that's not fair. I took advantage. <laughs> when Keith wasn't here. But um, so we do read this, read that, which is just basically girl talk. It's just us having fun. It's just us. You've been on the on the podcast. It's just us being us. Um, and then I do a podcast with uh, my husband, Jason, called What to Read, R-E-I-D. We love the read puns. Um, and basically, I just love books. I love to read. You can see in my background, I got lots and lots of books. Uh, and so I just pick books that I love and I interview the authors for that podcast. And, you know, that's pretty much it. And I'm working on this book right now, which I'm very, very excited about. Uh, which is a biography of Medgar and Murley Evers. And it's really a love story. It's a love story mm. and a civil rights story. I have never seen that kind of adoration and love that lasts generations the way I've seen it when I talked to Murley Evers. Oh, wow. I mean, he loved that man. And it is just such a beautiful story that I don't think people know. Um, and so hopefully we'll bring that out and also the horrible ways that she lost him and the mm. horrible conspiracy behind it that was not just one wicked, evil, racist man. It was a whole system in Mississippi and in this country. What's one book you recommend right now? What should we all be reading? Everybody should be reading the 1619 Project, the, mm. the, the book version of it. Um, I would start with that. I've been deep into reading a lot of James Baldwin, um, you know, The Fire Next Time and some other Baldwin stuff. I pulled it back out and started reading it again. But I really feel like probably the most critical thing for people to start with is the 1619 Project book, because I think we need to get a grounding in history to start before we have these conversations, because as both of you have said, we're just reliving that history. Well, thank you for joining us. I listen to your show every day. I do do the podcast and do it at double speed um, because I'm all about double speed on everything. That's the only way I read or listen to anything um, is double speed. So I I listen to you every day. It's my favorite show. Thank you, Joy. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you both, uh, Wes and Mar. You guys are amazing. So thank you very much for having me on. 
Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Runtell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.